This is the Criterion Creeps podcast. I'm Jarrett Duncan. I guess I'm RJ Balog. And we're two fools who have no other choice now but to creep our way through the Criterion Collection one spine number at a time in order of release. We do it so you don't have to. We're doing it for the love of the game. We are chasing that Criterion rainbow. This week, we're talking about spine number six in the Criterion Collection, Beauty and the Beast, directed by Jean Cocteau from 1946. But first, RJ, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. Doing pretty fair. Yeah. It's yeah. It's one of my cat's birthdays today, so uh, you know that's always a a nice pick me up for the house. Mm-hmm. Everyone's in high spirits. So we yeah. really needed that too, because uh, it is that time where the fall semester is starting at the university. Mm-hmm. All the uh, undergrads are coming back, and it is just the worst. It's they, slamming. It's yeah. It really fucks my shit up because it's just <sighs> busy and. They're horrible, and it makes everything more complicated. So I, re- I needed a pick-me-up today, so well, cat birthday was just what what I needed. Well, I mean, since if we're talking about university college campuses, I mean, we have to talk about the obvious topic of, like, how are the, the hot abs? The hot abs? Yeah. Um. Well, usually the semester starts out pretty strong with hot abs. Yeah. Um, you got some hot abs. You got some hard buds. Uh, but then I think, like, about a month in, um, a lot of the people start to either let it go or they get busy with the semester. Mm-hmm. And then you hit that midwinter funk where the freshman 15, or if you were anything like me years ago, the freshman 50 sets in and you just become a real fat piece of shit. <laughs> and that's where things like podcasts really help you out because yeah. no one's going to invite you out when you're, when you're a tub. I don't know. I, I think I've read some sort of like a uh, list somewhere talking about like top 10 things to like work on your core and i think podcasting was amongst the the top five listening or conducting both both because i I think i think the act of uh, podcasting is usually uh sedentary unless you Mm -hmm. uh pick up your shit and do something with yourself yeah well we're not doing either of those things other than yeah sitting sitting i'm well sometimes i have to move like if pizza hut comes if the manager comes out from the back stew he usually gives me some grief and tells me to move on but uh after about 10 20 minutes running around he gets tired and i'm usually okay so yeah and you get you get an exercise in there too yeah i get i get like a solid 10 minutes so i guess i'm doing it but yeah yeah how are you doing man uh i'm doing just fine counting down the hours now till i Go back to my uh, contract job for another eight months and uh, doing that thing also at the university. And, um, yeah, different different side of the building, but uh, mm-hmm. that won't be stopping me. From from I, what? I don't know. <laughs> from, from being there? Yeah. I'll, I'll put up some roadblocks if that's what you're, <laughs> what you're uh, insinuating. <laughs> Yeah, I have to go get a, all sorts of exciting things like uh, parking passes. That's... Oh, don't get me started on that nonsense. Yeah, yeah there's that going down. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, what other what other, what other uh, disasters uh, await me? I don't know because it's been four months Old since people. I've Yeah, uh, it's been four months since I've been in my office. And uh, we'll, we'll see mm. the state of that. I think I've got a, co- a new coworker. Mm-hmm. I'll be meeting for the first time who's come here all the way from way out east. And, uh, yeah, I haven't had a new coworker for a really long time. So we'll see how that goes down. 
I imagine it's not going to be good because as you've mentioned, you've been gone from your office for four months and I've once a week I've been hiding, uh, you know, raw fish, spoiled eggs, um, soiled underpants, things Mm -hmm. like that in every nook and cranny. And it's, it's been a hot summer, so things have been stewing. (laughs) Oh, so let's hope let's hope your uh, office mate doesn't get there before you do, because uh, there will be there will be quite a shock, I think. Well, uh, here on the uh, Criterion Creeps, we like to creep it real. Creep it real. That's right. We'll, we'll uh, get some bumper stickers made one day with that. Damn right. So RJ, that yes. brings me to my next question: What have you been creeping on? Well, you, you might be a little disappointed in me. I haven't I always been am. creeping. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's just established. Um, I haven't been creeping on that much this week, to be honest. I've been, as I said, the semester's gearing up, so all sorts of things that I could have been doing in the last couple months have suddenly been dropped on me now that things are back together. So I've been a little busy, a little busy, but uh, so not a lot in the movie realm, but uh, I finished that book I was reading, Bird Box by Josh Mallerman. Yeah. Uh, and that was a horror book. And actually, this is kind of relevant because I think Paramount or someone bought the rights for movies. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you a little details on that. It's a pretty good book. It was horror. It was a really cool idea, like a really good story. But I didn't really like his writing. Hmm. He was very like it was very like short and abrupt. So like there would be sentences where it would be like she stood, and then it would be like cold, period, the door, period. What was it? <laughs> question mark so it was like like that and i uh, i saw an interview with him like he said it was intentional to like create this sense of i don't know like loneliness or something but i didn't i didn't much care for that but the story was really cool it was about like picture stephen king's short story the jaunt uh meets the happening so it was like think people around the world started like whenever they would see this thing they would like start getting super aggressive and hurt other people and then hurt them like and then just kill themselves. So it got to a point where everyone just had to wear like blindfolds. Yeah. Like when they were walking around and stuff like that. So it was kind of a neat like idea for a book where it was it's actually really smart because he never actually had to like describe what the thing people were seeing was because whenever you would see it, you would just go crazy. So I think it was nice in that sense. So that mm-hmm. was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, the writing was a little little stinky. Yeah. I I think. Mm-hmm. So I I, re- I read that this week instead of movies. So that's not a recommendation. <laughs> um I don't know. Maybe when the movie comes out, maybe we'll have something to talk about then. Maybe. But uh no, the story was cool. I just maybe someone else will like that writing. If you're if you're a fast-paced kind of guy and you need your sentences uh one word at a time. I am. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it might be perfect for you then. Yeah. I'm I'm slow on the uptake. Slow on the uptake? Yeah. But uh yeah, that's all. I read that and ooh, I've been digging through some uh some old Batman, some Doug Monk and Kelly Jones. Yeah. That's sweet, <laughs> sweet Kelly Jones. I love that shit, man. The uh it's like my absolute favorite um depiction of Batman yeah. is like Kelly Jones where it's like super super long bat ears like unbelievably like unnecessarily and impractically long like yeah like four feet like bigger than his body i love that it's absolutely the best so just digging through that too yeah that's 
Yeah, That's that, it, man. That, yeah, that was the Batman. I think like when I first started to kind of get serious into comics, like in ninety six, ninety seven or so, he was sort of the bad artist on. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. Batman itself, and yeah, I mean, I love those comics. They were like, I don't, I didn't think of them as like. It wasn't like my favorite art, but I, mm-hmm. I found it like kind of interesting because it was like basically, I mean, it's just horror art. Like it's kind of yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, like it's sort of like a fast version of like Bernie Wrightson stuff. Like it's not that super detailed mm-hmm. like him, but I mean, it's like a more of like, well, this is a way you could actually draw and put this out on a monthly basis. So mm-hmm. yeah, and it was like totally like one of those things where like he just, uh, Kelly Jones just recently did that uh, a Swamp Thing miniseries, which it's like, yeah, yeah, there's like any artist that's like really well suited to doing Swamp Thing in this day and age. Uh, Kelly mm-hmm. Jones is that guy. Yeah, yeah. His Swamp Thing was awesome too. Like all his uh, his pencils and stuff like that were really cool. Yeah. But um, no, yeah, you're right. Like his Batman's really like horror. Like he's got super long like fingers yeah. and his cape is always like yeah, impossibly it's, it's long. Yeah, super like, always- drapery, yeah. Yeah draped but it's like sometimes like uh he'll like go being going upstairs and it'll be like the entire length of the staircase or something stuff like that he also did um the red rain batman where batman's like a vampire which i love i eat that like that's my absolute favorite so yeah i'm uh that was that was a nice treat for me this week i guess Mm -hmm. digging into some of that uh old good stuff yeah i I saw that you uh, also watched a you, you did manage to watch at least one short film uh, Spike, Spike Jones's uh, perfume commercial. Yeah, that that is true. Actually, um, mm. I forgot that I watched that. I watched my uh, mutant brain. My mutant brain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was pretty neat. Yeah. I um, I was, I watched it, and then uh, I saw it popping up on Letterboxd from other people who had watched it, and I was like, ooh, I was like, that'll count as a a film for my uh my stats. So yeah, I was like, I'll log that bad boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's not much for me to say about it. It's pretty pretty funkadelic. Yeah, I saw it was like trending on Facebook with like 15,000 people talking about it. And so I'm like, oh, Spike Jones. So I watched mm-hmm. it and I'm like, oh, I guess everyone has forgotten about uh, Weapon of Choice. <laughs> I haven't forgotten about that. Yeah. If you have, you're, you're a very silly boy. Yeah. Um, or for- any of his other music videos for that matter. Like yeah. I have that pack with all his music videos and they're awesome. Yeah. Spike Jones is wicked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he's uh, he's definitely one of the boys. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Good I, uh, old boys. Good old boys. Back Jones. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, what you've been creeping on? Pat. Well. Oh boy. Uh, let's see. Well, last time we didn't get to really talk about a few things, so I'm going to talk about them now. Um, right. First up is The Big Country from 1958, directed by William Wyler. Um, it's like now that's it's a western film that I completely had never heard of before and then i think i was like uh probably creeping on somebody's uh like like five star reviews on letterboxd um and i just saw like five like five stars the big country and i'm like what's this gregory peck huh i've like never seen anyone really talk about Mm -hmm. this movie too too much so um i blind bought it actually on blu-ray online and uh, i've had it for about a month or so and decided i'm gonna get some westerns in before the end of summer because i think the ideal time to be watching uh westerns is kind of august yeah absolutely and and i kind of failed to watch as many as i would have liked to but uh yeah watch the big country and that movie is amazing uh it stars gregory peck as a kind of eastern urbanite guy coming to the like the west and uh to get married to a woman that he met out in baltimore and so she's a she's a country girl he's coming in um and he kind of gets a uh taste of the country life when he gets uh 
uh, hazed by a couple of bumpkins. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like, he kind of just refuses to, like, kind of participate in this shit, like the this cowboy shit that people, like, yeah. the, the, these, like, people playing at being a man and stuff. And, I mean, mm-hmm. this movie essentially is just, like, a big, like, fuck you to um, – as much as I hate that expression, but it's like, it basically just says, yeah, that cowboy stuff is garbage. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, even like in that period of time, the 19th century or early 20th century, that stuff was stupid. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it kind of just goes along with it. Like pretty well, every stupid decision being made by, uh, people, they're all like, uh, oh, cause they're all Western, Western folk living on the prairies. And, oh man. Yeah. Lots of infighting. That's... Yeah. It's a real burial, <laughs> but oh, it's, that's too bad. but it's like, I don't know. It's, it's about like, the, like just dumb shit that people do to like mm-hmm. be tough. And like, like Charlton Heston's in it. He keeps trying to start fights and, um, like Gregory Peck <laughs> yeah. is just like, I'm not having this. And it's like, if we're going to fight, we're not going to fight when other people are around to watch us. We're just going to do this on our own terms. Mm-hmm. And that's like sort of like this, um, underlying moral code he has about dealing with his problems like there's a bit where uh they're kind of said oh let's go for a ride around the property and it's like yeah you get a ride on the the horse named thunder and everyone kind of starts gathering around and he's like starting to figure out like well everyone's gathering around because they're going to make an ass out of me and i'm not playing that game and of course everyone's like well, mm-hmm. why why don't you what's wrong with you ain't you a man and he's like future wife or whatever she's like she has a real problem with the fact that he's not playing into this shit and it reminds me of like a story um of uh, one of my really good friends, uh, Lawrence, he was telling me like a, f- a few years ago, he was like having a conversation with a couple of his coworkers um, at his old job. And it came down to like the situation where like, if you were like out front of a bar and some guy said something about your girl and mm-hmm. like the, the, both, one of the guys went, well, yeah, you'd have to step up. You, 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 you put that guy in his place and you got to like, defend her honor. And so the one guy, like, it kind of made sense that he would say it. He just seemed like one of those types. But the other mm-hmm. guy was this, like, f- nerd. <laughs> and he starts talking shit, like, yeah, man, you got to step up. You can't let people talk to like, your girlfriend that way. And it's like, what? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. So that that situation kind of, like, drives the big country. Just like, yeah, you could stand mm-hmm. up for what you think is right or whatever, but you, you might wind up dead <laughs> um do you think if you showed those type of people the big country their opinion would change and they'd they would like realize it all or do you think it would go like the complete opposite and be like man this gregory peck's a real bitch uh they might that that there's some people who might think he's a real bitch um oh, yeah that's too bad it's, it is too bad was that, was that movie the prequel to uh city slickers uh i think everything is a prequel to city slickers, to city slickers? yeah okay yeah gotcha. um yeah, the other thing too is uh, um, making sure I'm not confusing my movies. Burl Ives is in the movie, um, and he, I don't know who that is. Burl Ives. So Burl Ives, you would know him as the voice of the the snowman in Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, the okay. like the stop motion thing. So he's got that yeah. creamy, welcoming voice that like just like sounds of Christmas and country music. Well, he creamy. also he eats creamy and. Yeah. Uh, he, I don't know, I've seen a handful of these westerns that he's shown up in, and he's 
excellent. He's always just excellent. There's just one of, I think it's called Day of the Outlaw, um, mm-hmm. and he's great. He, that he basically plays sort of the same type of character too in it. But he's just like menacing and like he's not like an evil man, but he is willing to get things done. Um, and then his mm. one of his, his the, the guy who plays his son is Chuck Connors, who I've only kind of recently kind of been introduced to him just watching a lot of like kind of B movies and exploitation stuff. But he uh, was in this movie called The Mad Bomber playing the titular mm-hmm. character. I think it also goes by the name of uh, the police connection. And he's just like outstanding in that movie. And he's really good in this. It's sort of like the, like the man who doesn't realize that the girl who's being nice to him is just being nice to him because she doesn't want to get hurt by him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he, he plays dumb hick real good. But yeah, the big country by William Wyler, who also directed like that big, uh, the original uh, or not even the original, the 1954 Ben Hur um oh and, the original and, yeah well i think there, yeah. there's the original which i think there's like one from like 1926 which i think mm-hmm. is even more like reckless with like the live horses and bad oh, things B- bad <laughs> yeah. bad good old days of uh animal cruelty um yep. yeah but so yeah big country comes with a big recommendation that movie Ooh. was lovely um and then i watched a documentary that's about 18 minutes long called the prince of porn um, Good it's, Lord, it, Jared. It, it's a 2002 release. I mean, I don't even know if it actually had much of a release. Um, what it was is this guy who put it together, Brian O'Hara, he either shot or like edited only this footage of uh, pornographer Phil Prince, who like kind of is like the legendary like late 70s, early 80s pornographer who was making like the real rough stuff, like just gross 70s filthy pornography and this is like an 18 the good stuff the good stuff um yeah. and this is an 18 minute long documentary about this guy and like oh, he's just so he's like he's one of my type of characters um he's just like uh. unapologetically filthy and like he's like totally okay he's this new york guy and he's just totally okay with like hey i don't make the women do anything they didn't want to do i'm just here presenting a fantasy you know everyone here is part of the everyone's going along with it just fine and then and then oh. they're like like, yeah. It's just him in his like the like exactly the type of office you would think like a pornographer would work out of in like New York in the seventies, um, mm-hmm. and like it cuts to like it always hard cuts back to like uh, kind of like behind the scenes footage of these porns, and so right. you, you you get like oh it's like half of it's like informative interviews and documentary, then the other half is just oh it's pornography, but like you get like the kind of the outtake stuff, <laughs> mm-hmm. and just like these men preparing themselves to ejaculate, and uh, <laughs> uh, these right. women just laying around board in between scenes and just like guys yelling because like like a light fell ah jesus christ hold it hold it you gotta get back there and stuff um this is definitely not to everyone's tastes i guess um Mm -hmm. it all depends on your interest i guess in hardcore pornography uh as sort of a subcultural phenomenon um i'm pretty i'm pretty okay with that but uh like what? <laughs> well, you, you're a real fucking creep, though. <laughs> that's and I true. Think, I think I, that's I been, put the creep in the Criterion creeps. <laughs> in the creeps, yeah. I think that became clear when uh, we were talking about that Jeff Town movie. Yeah, I've had a lot of people come at me and they're like, "Are you in a safe place with this guy?" Like, <laughs> like blink twice if you need yeah. help, that kind of thing. But um, I'm not sure everyone else will share your yeah. your I don't know, like sentimentality towards these obscure 70s violent pornos but 
Um, you say it I'd like give, it's a weird thing, man. I no, I'd, I'd give one of them a watch. You find the best one and you show me. And All right. I'll, I'll, I'll go from there. Actually, that reminds me. I think um, isn't the guy who made The Wire, isn't he making uh, his next show is going to be about the 70s porno scene? Oh, uh, David Simon? Oh, if he is, that, yeah. would, be out, out, that would be awesome. I'm I'm yeah. almost 100% sure he is, and I think James Franco is starring in it, but James Franco might be starring in a different porn show. Yeah. But I, I know for sure, yeah, um, David Simon, he's doing, like, I think it's 70s porn. It could be 80s, but it's definitely, like, a period piece uh, show about porno in the past. Oh, that, so. sound, that sounds uh, genuinely exciting, actually. Um, yeah. I, so right now, I'm the only person to have watched The Prince of Porn. Um on Letterboxd. Um, I found out about it from, um, actually, I was looking through my old uh, Cinema Sewer uh, zines um, just for like, because I hadn't seen or looked through them for a long time. And I feel like I've learned a lot more about movies since I first got them. It's a, uh, for people who don't know, it's a uh, zine out of Vancouver by a a fella named Robin Bougie. um, Mm -hmm. And, or Boogie, I think. I can't remember how he prefers the pronunciation on that. But, Mr. Boogie. Boogie. Uh, But yeah, yeah, if you haven't, Cinema Sewer is great. He talks a lot about uh, the the sleaziness of like cinema. Uh, He'll talk about, exploitation, horror, pornography, in-depth with drawings, lots of great drawings. Um, and I highly mm-hmm. recommend it. It's all available on his site. I think it's like cinemasewer.storenv.com or something like that. So there's a free plug. Um, so after that, mm-hmm. I classed it up a little bit. Um, mm, that's uh, questionable. Well, hey. So I watched The Circus from 1928, directed by Charlie Chaplin. Um, okay. And, hey, it's, it's really good. It's like a... Uh, prime era Charlie Chaplin doing his feature length stuff Um, I don't really have too much to say about it but um, after that I kind of started looking around for Charlie Chaplin short films that are just on YouTube kind of like in the public domain there's like uh, or at least no one's taken them down at the moment but Mm -hmm. one that really stood out at me uh, was the first short I watched of his called Kid Auto Races at Venice Um, Mm -hmm. it's from 1914 and I would posit that Charlie Chaplin uh invented jackass because what what what, so what what it this is is the setup is that him and his uh film crew went down to like a little like a kid's auto race so they were just building like their own little like cars that they were running down hills and there's like huge Mm -hmm. like huge crowd of people gathered and so i think the the gimmick with it was that he would he showed up in sort of like a pre-tramp being famous sort of role so i mean like at right. the time, people may not necessarily know what was going on, um, mm-hmm. and so and so he just started playing like this like homeless creepy bum <laughs> who just kept like wandering into like the middle of the road while these people are filming and becoming really mm-hmm. interested in the camera, and he just starts playing it up like he's just like standing right in front of it and like trying to find like the perfect position to stand in front of the camera and in the background you just see all these kind of people kind of like looking over and just like watching this but the whole idea is that there's like a a second unit of people filming Mm -hmm. that are in front of the other camera and they're like acting like he's in the shot and he's just like keeps playing up this idea that he's getting chased off but he keeps resisting he keeps coming back and getting to these fights with these cameramen wherever they shoot (laughs) and so I mean but all these people around are like what the hell is this but I I guess like I couldn't help but think of like you know like Spike Jones dressed as an old person or Johnny Knoxville and like these interactions with like the real world I guess like just doing that yeah Mm -hmm. um uh god I can't remember the name of that the just for last 
or not just for last, but like that type of show, like the the Colin other mockery, uh, candid camera, <laughs> candid camera. Okay. Yeah, it's like kind yeah, of like just for last gigs. Yes, that's the right. Canadian version. Yeah, 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 and I mean that's basically what he was doing in 1914, which I thought was like kind of brilliant that he was like thinking about uh, how much an audience could bring something into it and playing this character in the real world and just right. doing the same shtick. Um, and like a couple of the other things, like just like these simple things that Charlie Chaplin does, where like uh, if he's like too short to look through a hole, he like lifts himself up by his pants to get himself higher, which I think is like mm-hmm. way, way funnier than it should be. Because um, just right. like, because he's just, yeah, I don't know. There's it's the a, kind of classic body humor that uh, Bridesmaids was trying to do. Yeah, <laughs> Bridesmaids yeah. and Chaplin. Um, yeah, like yeah, I, I don't know. I always had this like weird bad impression of Charlie Chaplin for some reason. Like I think it came about like in like uh, the Garth Ennis comic Preacher. He has a bit mm-hmm. talking about like just like how I think like the one character says like he uh, he could shove his cane up his arse and it wouldn't make me laugh and. Um, He's just talking like extolling the virtues of uh, Laurel and Hardy, and I mean, mm-hmm. but now I'm like, well, I love Laurel and Hardy, but I also like love Charlie Chaplin movies, so it's like right. it's all good. Why, 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 why the hate? Why the hate? Hey, you can have nice things from two different spots, you know. Yeah, you don't have. It doesn't have to be like a hard dichotomy between the two. You're not Marvel and DC fanboys here. Like, yeah, yep. you can't. You can have two nice things if you're yeah. ever interested, pal. I got have a pretty nice collection of Chaplin shorts. So I'll lend that your way. And as you said, he may have invented Jackass, but I don't know if you know this, but um, Charlie Chaplin Chaplin invented the internet. So we we can do, yeah. In in case anyone out there was wondering, don't fact check that or anything. Just just trust me. Well, we'll put it on Wikipedia and then everyone will believe it. Yeah, that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, I guess in the same silent old people era, I also watched uh, a John Ford film called Three Bad Men from 1926. Um, Mm -hmm. I had just seen like... Again, a guy on Letterboxd just like gave it like a five-star review and I was like, oh, huh. And I'm like, oh, I could find that pretty easily and I did. And uh, yeah, what what a great movie. Like for an hour and a half silent Western film, I had a lot of like, again sort of prejudices against this type of thing. I've, I've seen right. some stuff where it's like, I tried watching um, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance this week. And after mm-hmm. about 15 minutes, I just said, fuck it. Like, I, I just, I couldn't care less. Like, it's so, right. it's so far removed from like film craft in a lot of ways. I mean, I got that, like he was figuring stuff out and like the scale of these productions are like kind of stunning, but mm-hmm. I just like, I couldn't care. I just don't. But Three Bad Men is just like, a, like it seems like all the parts of like the Western, especially like with like comedic characters and like um, just pacing were just nailed in 1926, which right. I mean, like you would think that like, well, it seems like the cliche is always that like the like German expressionist films, like the European silence stuff was just like way ahead of the American stuff. But I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it's also John Ford. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. Well, I, I was going to ask what you think about John Ford, like, oh. in general, his westerns. Oh, I, I, he's really solid. He's really good. Yeah. Um, 
I have to look over the list of the stuff I've watched. I've watched a, like kind of the, most of his significant stuff. But um, I, uh, last year I watched, there's a um, documentary called Directing by John Ford. And I believe it is uh, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. But there's this really funny bit. Like this this documentary just made John Ford just seem like the biggest like old bastard who just had mm-hmm. no time at all for Peter Bogdanovich. Because I think there's a bit where like, and I think it was Three Bad Men he was talking about now that I think about it. Um, where it's like, Peter Bogdanovich was like asking him a question, like, so like in Three Bad Men, the, the in the scene that uh, where you have the the all the wagons all prepared on the line to go running into the country f- for the land claim, uh, how did you shoot that? And John Ford's response was with a camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. It's like yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, I think there's another one with like uh, another like anecdote like Steven Spielberg told like but like he just like somehow wound up in like John Ford's office and like mm-hmm. be- under like he's like a young filmmaker before having done anything. Like, he was still a student um, at whatever whatever UCLA or uh, whatever school he was going to and he went up like in John Ford's office and John Ford's like sorry you want to be a director and he's his whole thing was like just like grabbing these pictures off the wall and he's like well, well what's what what do you see and he's like well what do you mean what do you mean he's like where's the horizon oh right there yeah and then he grabbed another picture well, where where's the horizon <laughs> and uh I'm, I'm paraphrasing this story but uh and it's like well what are you talking about he's like well that's all that's all that matters when you're shooting something where the horizon line is, that's all that matters when you shoot. And I mean, Uh, so I was like, huh? Okay. But ever since then I've watched more John Ford films and I'd go, yeah, it really is about the horizon line. (laughs) Like with his movies, like he was so aware of that. And then like, and you can like, depending on the type when there's, especially when there's movies, lots of uh, exteriors, you really are like, you should be aware of like horizons and you start realizing, Oh yeah. The people who are like putting a lot of thought into that, they're the people who are like, obviously a lot more worth thinking about in some ways right i am but uh i'll i'll finish my creep with a grueling note <laughs> um Uh-oh. i watch uh so after that uh top 100 bbc listing of uh 21st century movies uh mm-hmm. i checked out the film son of saul from 2015 uh directed mm-hmm. by uh laszlo Nimes. I would say I will guess his name is pronounced. One um, of my uh, Mudyar brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Laszlo. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. Uh, so, uh, Son of Soul. Uh, I I didn't know anything really about this movie going in, except that it had something to do with the Holocaust. Um, the cheer, one of the cheeriest of topics, and uh, so I started watching it, and and I first noticed, I'm like, oh, this movie's all shot in full frame. Oh, this movie's like shot in like this shallow focus where like the main character is sort of like in the foreground and everything behind him is like pretty well out of focus. Mm-hmm. It is, well, not pretty well, it is. And then um, it's like obvious, like oh, this guy's like uh, kind of in front of a train where a bunch of people are getting off. And then you kind of follow him, like kind of almost like a like a video game, I guess is like the laziest way to describe it. Kind of over his shoulder as like he's like bringing, he's following all these people into this building, and you're getting like all these like. Uh, German voices that are all subtitled just describing, oh, you people will all be uh, put to good work here. Uh, we need people to build furniture and, car- and do carpentry. And, uh, oh, yeah, just leave here. Just undress. Uh, leave your clothes here on the racks. And, uh, oh, there's going to be some hot soup. Uh, you just have to get showered first. And, uh, yeah, just just right this way. And, like, mm-hmm. you, I start, you start realizing, wait, the, the guy that we're following, he's not getting undressed. And um, then you see all these people getting pushed into the room. And that's when I click and I go, oh, 
And then you hear the click of the doors, and then you start hearing the screams of people. But then uh, this this guy you're following, him and like a a bunch of other people, um, they all start digging through the pockets of these people as they're being Mm -hmm. gassed. And that's when you realize, oh, yeah, it's like the death camps, and they're like at the point of like full-on like liquidation of human beings uh, to dispose of them as quickly as possible because the war Mm -hmm. is starting to wind down. And you get to follow this main character uh, over the course of two and a half days uh, in, uh, yeah, uh, a concentration camp where they're burning bodies left and right. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, this movie, it's like not light viewing. Uh, It's it's a really amazing movie. Um, Like, I think like, the, one of the things I'm going to think about for a long time with this movie is its sound design. You get the sound of like the scrubbing of concrete floors um, mm-hmm. to get rid of viscera. You get the sound of shovels shoveling ash uh, into a river to dispose of mm-hmm. evidence. And this is just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's quite an amazing movie. Cause like, there's like one movie that people keep comparing it to called the gray zone, which is like, it's mm-hmm. all like, basically, so this character, uh, I believe it's uh, he's a Soman commando, which is essentially, so he's Jewish. And, um, the situation he finds himself in is he's under the employ of, uh, Germans to, uh, basically assist in the wholesale slaughter of his own people. Right. And, uh, Apparently, like after a certain amount of time, they're like it's basically it's a it's all out of pure survival because if you don't agree to do this, you're going to be dead. And so, by at least being alive long enough, you have a chance of maybe uh, escaping mm-hmm. uh, yourself because you know inevitably they're going to kill you as well. Which apparently is a fate that be- befalls the Soman commandos. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, this movie is great. It's not for not something you just pop in any day of the week just to check it out. Yeah. Uh, you got to be mentally in the right state of mind to check to watch this. But it's yeah, high praise and definitely uh, one of the better films I've seen of the 21st century. It's definitely a little mm-hmm. bit better than say I don't know, Finding Nemo. <laughs> well, I think that. That would be you'd be hard pressed to compare the two. Now I haven't seen Son of Saul, but it sounds a little lowbrow for my liking. Yeah, I usually like my movies to have a little more class, like uh, I don't know, uh, Inside Out, The Hurt Locker, Shame, <laughs> things like that. You know, yeah, yeah. Paul Paul Feig movies, uh, <laughs> stuff like that. Gotcha. So fair enough. No, that sounds good. I'll go back to my motherland, uh, roots country of Hungary, and watch all these depressing movies like Son of Saul and. Uh, what's that one with the dogs where the dogs take over? Oh, you know? uh, white God, white God. Yeah. Just, I, I don't know if that's Hungarian. I, I, th- it's, I, I think it is. It's definitely in some Eastern European hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and then like, isn't there another Hungarian movie on there? Like the oh, one where well, the, two, the one girl has to get like an abortion. Oh, that's Romanian. I think. Well, Ro- Romania, uh, Romania used to be part of. Well, okay. Okay. Fair enough. So, yeah, the whatever four months, eight weeks, and three days. I think. Right. Yeah, I've seen that too. That movie is, is also grueling, but it, yeah. yeah, it again, it's not like uh, Sunday afternoon with over at the folks viewing. But Son of Saul is on Netflix, yeah. at least in Canada. So really, yeah. Oh, weird. Yeah. That's cool. Why. I'm gonna check. Well, I'll check that out then. Yeah, you will. Yeah. Um, I thought I'd have to go out of my way to order it off of some weird online movie site. Yeah. Oh, and uh, I guess like a future creeping will be, I have a copy of the uh, uh, Hungarian film, um, Workmeister Harmonies from 2000 coming my way. Is that more Hungarian uh, 
sadness and yeah well cruel. so the movie is two hours and 25 minutes long and consists of 39 shots mm-hmm. yeah that's oh. so it's it's going to be that type of deal but i think it's supposed to be pretty good <laughs> it sounds okay and if it's any indicator if it's anything like the other Hungarian movies you've been watching lately, it'll be right up your alley. Damn right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that all being said, I think that's enough creeping for one day. Um, gripes from the Griperian Collection. <laughs> the Griperian Collection. Well, Correct. RJ, what, what, what's got your, uh, I don't know, panties what's in got, a bind? <laughs> what's got my bee in a bonnet? Yeah. Uh, I have um, two gripes for you. Okay. But before I gripe down, yeah. I'm going to give you one thing I'm actually excited for. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. But you probably won't. You Well, I can already tell you won't care, and most <laughs> other people won't care. But uh, Go on, going man. back to uh, the early days of the podcast when uh, all my news was DC uh, movie related. Yeah, we remember um, those times. Yeah. Yeah, well, just really quickly, they finally <laughs> greenlit that uh, Justice League Dark movie which I'm super stoked for. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, Justice League Dark is like Swamp Thing, Dead Man, uh, Zatanna, uh, John Constantine, all those magical characters, stuff like that. Yeah. Good, good shit. Um, the long gestating movie that was once held by Guillermo del Toro, it's no longer going to be with him, which I think is a godsend because I, I like, don't get me wrong, I like Guillermo del Toro a lot, but it seems like anything he gets involved with either never happens or is just lost forever. So it is going to be directed by Doug Lyman, who oh, okay. did uh, Born Identity and uh, Edge of Tomorrow, which I actually liked a lot, that Tom Cruise yeah. joint. I thought we're, that was really what, good. Whatever its title is now. Yeah, whatever. Live, whatever die, live die, repeat. <laughs> live, die, repeat. Yeah, yeah it's um, so that is like the weirdest thing. I, I, I've never seen that, like where a movie has completely been like rebranded. Like if you like, it's baffling. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I think the marketing on that really hurt it because I think that was a really good, um, cool sci-fi movie that uh, could have done well, but because it had Tom Cruise and because it was marketed weird, I don't think it did as good as it should have. I mean, it's nothing beats the t- like the uh, the manga title. All you, all you need is kill. Kill. That- yeah, I know that would have been perfect. <laughs> yeah, but. It would be, mem- be more memorable than Edge of Tomorrow and Live Die Repeat. <laughs> Live Die Repeat, yeah. yeah. So I don't know why they why they did that, but so this uh, Doug Lyman guy, he just filmed another movie with Tom Cruise. So I guess they're buddies. So maybe Tom Cruise will be like Zatanna or something, or maybe Etrigan, Etrigan the Demon. That would be really cool. Yeah. Um, but so, anyways, the really good thing about this is uh, the main producer is Scott Rudin, and if you're unfamiliar with him. I, I have just a little, a quick rap sheet here for you. Oh, he yeah. has produced oh, such films as... RJ's produced uh, a little yellow piece of paper. Hey, you don't tell them trade <laughs> secrets. They don't need to see how the sausage is made. It's, it's pod, podcast magic. Podcast magic. So anyways, this is Scott Rudin. He has produced such films as The Addams Family, Sister Act, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, Truman Show, Life Aquatic, No Country for Old Men, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Darjeeling Limited, Social Network, Inside Lewin Davis, Grand Budapest Hotel, and Ex Machina, to name a few. So this guy's a pretty big wig producer, so that might be good. That's, that could be cool. That's promising. Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, is one of my favorite movies of all time. So, yeah. Uh, I, it's promising. Like I like him, and the, I like the director, so hopefully this will actually get made. 
Cool. But uh, so that's that's all I have for good news. Now to some gripes, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'll just burn through these quick. Uh, it was announced this week that there is going to be a TV show to the Euro classic Let the Right One In. Mm, okay. Uh, if, pe- if people are unfamiliar oh. with this, the story <laughs> is uh, based on a John Lundquist uh, book about um, a young girl vampire and her relationship with a young boy, both like 12 years old. You probably know what it is. And if you're not, just go watch the movie. Well, the, um, to, 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 uh, to nitpick, the, the girl appears to be like 12 years old. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But anyways, uh, so they're going to make a TV show on TNT, which sounds fucking ridiculous. Like, I don't know why you would make a TV show of this property. Um, number one, I don't think there's even enough material there for it. And if it is, it's just going to be turned into some like cheap, bad show oh the the guy who is making this made the teen wolf tv show so that that shows you uh how much uh credibility they have in those uh, bears. yeah see I, I didn't even know there was a teen wolf like tv mm-hmm. show <laughs> yeah exactly well you haven't even seen the real teen wolf so but let me let me just tell you i'm a Yo. big fan of teen wolf and when i saw clips of that tv show that they made i was pretty turned off by it so okay. that's my endorsement um so i think this is going to stink uh, I think Let the Right One is really good, but controversial hot take. I actually like, I think I like the American remake more than the original, which people might mm. pillage me you, for that. But. You mentioned that to me before. And I, I mean, I haven't seen the uh, US remake yet. Um, it's mm-hmm. on the docket, probably even this uh, Halloween. And yeah. um, I've seen like some people, like they really rate the Let Me In highly. So I don't know how controversial that comment is. And it's been years since I watched um, the original. So I remember loving the original, but... um, Well, I'll say this about uh, the remake, Let Me In. I I actually saw that before I saw the original. Yeah. So there's a lot of scenes that are almost carbon copies of that. For sure. So that might be what it is. Um, Because the original was cinematographer was Hoyt Van Hoytum, which is Chris Nolan's new main man over uh, Wally Fister. He's done, he did Interstellar, and he's doing Dunkirk right now for him. Right. So I think a lot of the visuals from the original were carried over into that remake. Okay. But um, I thought the remake, like, did a lot better job establishing, like, the relationship between the girl vampire and the little kid friend, but also, like, her live-in, like, caretaker, who in the American one is Richard Jenkins. Right. And you've heard us talk about Richard Jenkins, buddy. He's awesome. So, um, I no, I just think it did a better job, like showing her interact with them and like the relationships. So, yeah. I yeah, I like the remake more. But uh, anyways, really good movie, but I don't think it warrants an entire televised series. I mean, it's got a pretty good base because I mean, I guess there's like the whole idea that like, well, what happens after? And I mean, you could probably mm-hmm. do a show from that point. I mean, because you could pretty well do like that first movie in like the first few episodes or whatever, but mm-hmm. uh, and draw it out. It's I mean, it makes way more sense than, say, a Friday the 13th TV series. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And actually, even just saying that, I just remembered. Um, so the author of like the the book, yeah. he has um, kind of like a spiritual sequel called uh, But the Old Ones Die, I right. think is what it's called. And it's like I think it's it takes on. Uh, from a couple of his old books, but like one of them is let the right one in and it kind of explores what happens afterwards. So I guess there's material out there for that. 
And that actually, that's a really nice, nice, solid transition into my other gripe, which I'll be very quick about. Okay. Like book-wise and stuff. Shoot. I heard that uh, it was announced like yesterday or something that Richard Linklater, your buddy, is going to make a sequel to the Hal Ashby classic, The Last Detail, starring Jack Nicholson and uh, everybody's favorite, um, what's his face? Danny, or Danny Quaid? Not Danny Quaid. Oh, uh, well, you're, Randy oh, you're, Quaid. Yeah, oh, you're talking about the original. Okay, but yeah, the, the so, last but the new version doesn't have a new cast, perhaps. Yeah, it's got it's actually got a huge cast. It's like Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, and uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Whoa. So when I first heard that, I was like, oh, that's weird, because I was like, maybe they're just making like a straight remake. But apparently, uh, this guy named Daryl Punixon, he wrote the last detail, okay. and he actually wrote. The sequel called um, Last Standing Flag, which is what Linklater is going to do it on. And it's uh, it's basically the same story, but in a, a post 9-11 world. Um, it's got a really good cast and Linklater is doing it, so it's probably going to be good. But uh, I don't know. This idea sounds a little stinky to me. Um, yeah, it's pretty random. I mean, I can totally I, I can imagine I'm getting inside of Richard Linklater's head right now. And it makes mm-hmm. sense that he would be interested in The Last Detail as a movie he's like really likes. But yeah. I guess like making that leap where it's like, I've got the, just the right idea and now's the time to retell that story. It's just like, who is like, I don't know who the audience is for The Last Detail. Like, I'm not sure like yeah. how many fans it has. I mean, whatever. Mm-hmm. Who gives a shit about like who's going to see these movies? I guess it's like about just making a movie that like, the people an audience will find it i guess yeah um i don't know it's weird like it's just like every damn thing that yeah. keep, gets remade that seems to be like a uh, half of our gripes is uh, is remakes and, and re- repurposes i guess yeah. uh tele- televising things i mean uh i honestly well, yeah yeah for the most part i i find that news like this i like i, I didn't even register like i saw that today and i was just like oh and then I just moved on because I'm like, well, mm-hmm. well, we'll see if it happens because it may not happen either. But usually once you start getting that like level of actor, it's going to happen unless Gilmero mm-hmm. Del Toro is directing. And then it's probably exactly. never, then it never happens. Um, exactly. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, I, I'm firmly in the wait and see uh, with like my with my both hands sort of in a shrug position. Yeah. It's like, I don't yeah. know. Emoticon shrug, yeah. whatever. Yeah, and like, uh, I don't. If if they get Randy Quaid, then I'd be a little bit more interested. Yeah, but yeah. For, I don't think absolutely. anyone can connect with that guy anymore. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that, for, absolutely. I guess. Oh, well, yeah. Star Whackers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, for, yep. yeah. That that old chestnut. Yeah. Hey, like like seventies Randy Quaid is like awesome. He's so yeah, good. I know. He's well, I I really like the last detail. I think that movie fucking rules. Yeah. But so that's why I was like, when I first heard, I was like, Ugh. and then I saw there was like a book and link later, and I was like, okay, well, I don't know. I it could be good. Oh, I'll still watch yeah. it, but it just sounds like I don't know why. Why not just make something else? Mm-hmm. Is what I take from it. <laughs> Get that oh, all star hey. cast you've wrangled and do something else. Yeah. Uh, hashtag controversial creeping i don't know or something like that creeps controversy brian cranston overrated well now i think we're going to be a little divided on that that's what i mean controversy controversy (laughs) um i don't agree with that but i mean i honestly i mean fine once you get beyond like walter white 
as as like sort of this like uh, iconic character of like crime television. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. <laughs> He, it's like he just starts appearing in stuff, and it just seems like I don't know. Like maybe I'll watch him again. Like, I haven't seen him in anything lately. I think the last thing I would have seen him in was probably that Godzilla thing, which mm-hmm. it could have been played by anybody. Um, yeah, but I don't know. Nothing makes me like go out and want to seek out like Trumbo or like um, that LBJ like HBO special, mm-hmm. which are all like sound like they were like all pretty like I guess Trumbo was well regarded, but I know that LBJ thing was supposedly a pretty middling and I'm like, well, nothing nothing makes me go, oh, I gotta check out that new Brian Cranston performance. It seems like he's kind of like that it guy because he won all those right. Emmys. Just it's like when John Hamm was sort of interesting for like a, a hot New York minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so I don't agree with you with Brian Cranston, but I agree with uh, him and John Hamm being second rate Emmy winners. They both won like three or four in a row motherfucking john goodman won seven years in a row for roseanne so you come back to me like you come back to me when you got seven in a row for a tv show and then we'll talk yeah so i don't think his those emmys are as impressive as uh doing it like that so what are your gripes oh man well i've got one gripe <sighs> I hesitate even going into it, but Uh I sent you this earlier today. Um, So Rob G of the Shockwaves podcast, he wrote a article for uh, bloomhouse.com called Artist Subjective, So Stop Nitpicking Cover Art. The gist is... Okay. (laughs) So the gist is um, the Scream Factory that puts out a lot of like really nice Blu-rays of movies. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. are putting out a Black Christmas collector's edition. Sure. Um, and they released some of the, or the cover art for it. Like what they usually do is they do some new art that's like done in sort of this like eighties painted style, but it's like far more like, uh, actually it's almost like more than a 70 style, but full rendering of the actors and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. kind of evoking a sense of like nostalgia. Um, right. And they do that pretty well for all their collector's editions. And what they also do, though, is like, so that's a slip cover. And then on the inside, they have that on the outside. But you can flip that cover over inside and have the original, like, uh, uh, deep video packaging on the, on it instead. Hmm. Which, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. No, it's... I like, have, like, six of those, and I, I never knew. <laughs> yeah. No, and you can always... you can So there's an option. You can opt in or out of the covers or whatever. I usually opt in for the mm-hmm. original because I have the slip cover, and so it's on there anyway. So I get both right. that way. So, mm-hmm. well, anyway, um, from what Rob writes... It's um, apparently, well, this is like the big thing. Some horror fans are real losers. Lots are great, (laughs) fine, normal people, but some are total pieces of shit and behave accordingly. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess what happened was like, so on this Black Christmas cover, um, maybe we'll post it on our Instagram page or maybe you can look it up yourself. But um, basically what it boils down to is it kind of reveals like, the killer, I guess, on the front cover in the sense that they show him, like, as much as you see him in the movie, which is, like, you just see, like, the silhouette of the guy and, like, his eye. Yeah. Um. So that's shown on the cover. The cover's not bad. Um. Mm-hmm. But I guess, like, people just complaining and posting on their Facebook page, which has, like, always been really bad. Like, just, mm-hmm. this is shit, blah, blah, blah. Like, if you've, like, if this, this has been going on for years. This isn't new. Um. It didn't yeah. start with Black Christmas. It's been going on quite a while. Um. And, I mean... So I guess my my gripe is that I have like I don't know 
this idea that art is subjective it's like yes and no um because like there's some things you could extend this to um mm-hmm. for instance the village of the damned uh collector's edition cover that they use that screen factory had it's yep. atrocious like it's really mm-hmm. bad like it's just like it is like uh i think objectively a bad drawing like i don't know if the artist just had a bad day has a hard time drawing children but it's like mm-hmm. i'm not sure if it's intentional i don't know why you would make intentionally a bad painting um but i guess people do yeah. some of those things but performance art yeah it's performance art painting art yeah yeah. Jesus. But anyway, I guess like some of the points he makes, like it's like, yeah, it's fair enough. It's like, yeah, people don't be psychopaths and like harass people and like go mm-hmm. on and on and on about this. There's other things in this world to like focus on other than Blu-ray packaging. Right. But at the same time, I mean, as a person who collects movies, um, I mean, this is the Criterion Collection uh, show. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I buy this stuff. Um, I'm a fan. I'm a uh, I, I like nicely designed things, so I I yeah. will be, I'm yeah I'll still buy a movie even if it like is ugly to look at just because I want a copy of the movie but I'm not gonna be really that happy about it and I mm-hmm. like I might actually even buy something that looks really good even if I don't really like the movie like that's sort of like this right. weird line where it's like yeah I mean, you can make something still appealing um, to a person and draw people in like it's kind of like it's a lost art in marketing I think it's just mm-hmm. I mean cr- I mean Criterion knew this like for a long like for like during its like prime days of design I'd argue um, they, mm-hmm. they make movies that just like whoa that's a really nice cover what's this movie all about that's what that's the reason you package things that is the end, right. of, end of the day that's exactly why you do it um, mm-hmm. I mean the, the reason why these uh, collector's editions from Scream Factory have sort of these different style covers is I think because they want to appeal to people looking at stuff on Walmart shelves. And I mean, if, if people want to like pretend that like Walmart's not a factor, at least in the U S it is like, if they're mm-hmm. uh, like, they're, they're, the reason they put out those like kind of like crappy 2010 era, like new movies, like that's no one ever, like no horror fans really want to watch like mm-hmm. zombies versus Cockneys. At the end of the day, those movies, like those things sell like crazy. And those things actually support like, all their endeavors. Um, right. Yeah. It's so, I mean, there's a business end of it. So you have, you want to put these things with like kind of eye catching covers. And I mean, it might not be your, to your taste or you're trying to appeal to like multiple masters and what you're doing. I get mm-hmm. that. Um, I mean, one thing I always like think about as far as like my Blu-rays go is like, I have this amazing region free Japanese Blu-ray of um, Orson Welles the trial. And mm-hmm. I, I got it because it's the only way you can get a copy of that movie on Blu-ray. But I, when I got it in the mail, this thing is just like an amazing piece of design and packaging. And like, um, I far I follow um, Hideo Kojima on his Twitter, and he's yeah. always posting his uh, his movies that he buys because he's a movie collector. Mm-hmm. And I see all like these Japanese like releases that they get, and the covers are so much better than what oh, comes yeah. out in North America. And it's like I don't know. So I mean, this idea that it's like. Uh, shut up and be happy with what you're getting because otherwise you wouldn't get these movies anyway. It's ridiculous. It's like, why do we have to lower our standards in North America so much? I mean, one of the quotes in this article he wrote, be humble. You're getting something rather than nothing. It's like, wait a minute. (laughs) It's like, I mean, there's this idea that like, I mean, people are being entitled, but it's like, well, I think people are taught like, all around like the West that like, if you complain enough, you can get things changed. And that's what it boils down to. But the problem is, is people get louder and louder and more crass and like personal Mm -hmm. and messed up. And that's a problem. I mean, like the one thing you kind of like one of the last lines in this article too is like you of course have the right to voice your opinion but to berate the company the artist or the people involved in these releases is just disrespectful 
I don't know. Like that's a weird way of putting it. Um, mm-hmm. Like uh, the the Rob guy, I know he like, obviously he's friends with Scream Factory people too. So I mean, yeah, there's probably that disrespect. But at the same time, I'm like I don't know. Like I get what he's saying, but at the same time, it's sort of this like I don't know. It's not going to help cool off anybody who's mm-hmm. bitching about this stuff. They're just going to read that, and he's going to get heat on himself um, because mm-hmm. the internet's a horrible place. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, um, I agree with you completely. Like, so what you're saying, um, when you brought up like Criterion stuff, that goes way back to when you asked me in the first episode, like how I found Criterion Collection. It was because of the cover, yeah. like the cover to Thin Red Line, because like it stood out to me so much that every time I saw it, I was like, man, that fucking cover's so cool. And then I bought it, and that's like all their covers. Yeah. All their covers like just look great, and I think that's a huge draw. Like, I know what you mean, like with the Screen Factory ones, because like. I have a like a good handful of those movies, and I remember um, a couple months ago when uh, the the Manhunter uh, Blu-ray came out, yep. and like the artwork for that was released. Yeah, I remember I saw it because it was like, well, I'm definitely getting Manhunter. Yep. And then uh, I saw the art, and I was like, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> was like, that's kind of weird. Yeah, they're but, not like, all I still, hits. <laughs> yeah, I still bought it, but I'll just yeah. now that I know I can just flip it around, I'll probably just do that. Like, I don't know, like there's a lot of the covers on there of like movies I want and the covers are kind of stinky. Like, and I'll, I'll eventually still buy them anyways, but, uh, yeah, yeah I don't know. Like, yeah, why no. not just be like, Hey, Hey, this stuff sucks. Yeah. Get something, get something better to do it. And then obsessing about it. I mean, it's like, a bit, I, get, I imagine a lot of these guys that are posting about this, they have like nothing else better to do. <laughs> and it's just like, well, yeah, I, guess. I mean, then they post their stuff and, oh, I got this, I need slip covers for this movie. Otherwise, it's like going to drive me crazy. And I'm like, Ugh. I mean, I'm a collector, but I don't let that stuff bother me. I mean, I've got like mm-hmm. previously viewed copies of Blockbuster stuff like that I got because it was cheaper to get it that way than buying it at retail. Mm-hmm. And um the uh yeah i don't know i don't care that much i still have stickers on stuff and it's like well it used to bother me a little bit but i'm like not going to like it's not the end of the world i mean i'd I'd still rail more against like those uh security devices and clothes stickers they put on things to this day um that like do nothing but they don't deter Mm -hmm. theft or anything they just like someone has a business and they got in on it and people just keep shrugging their shoulders and keep putting them on. Um, and it's just one extra step that keeps me from enjoying the thing I just bought. So right. fuck those things. Um, yeah. Hey, where do you stand on uh, Blu-ray and DVD shells that have locks, like clamps? Uh, are you are you pro-clamp or anti-clamp? What? Do you know what I mean? No. Like, so you know when you open up, like, the Blu-ray case? Yeah. Sometimes oh, the Blu-ray has, like, yeah. like, a lock, like a clamp. Are you pro clamp or anti clamp? I'm I'm gonna be anti clamp. Um, okay. I remember the days of the clip case DVDs that Warner Brothers uh, used for years and years and years, um, and there it was just like so flimsy, like it's like kind of just this weird cardboard case with a piece of plastic locking in place. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, clamps. It, it's like yeah, there was like I can't remember which company it is, but like on the I think Paramount used it where they had like a little double clips on the thing, and they just yeah. like, they just break, and mm-hmm. it's like well, then one breaks and then barely even. Like, what's the point of the other one? Unless I break it off too. But now I have this like weird looking case. But it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, well, it's going to be sitting on my shelf 99% of its life. Um, except for that time where it's sitting in front of the TV beside the player that I've just loaded. Um, and then you're so, distracted the whole movie because you're like, look at that weird fucking case. Yeah, I'm, I'm not at that step yet. Well, <laughs> Fort- you'll get there. Fortunately. Yeah, it's only a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Man, yeah, I, I I was just curious. I thought I'd ask. It seemed like it was in the realm of uh, yes. cases and covers and yeah. clamps and things. All right. Well, so. 
Well, hey, let's wrap this shit up because we've got a fucking Criterion movie to cover. A beast of a Criterion. A beast. A beauty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after the break, we're going to be talking a little French beast action. Okay. Reconnaissez les acteurs, mes amis, 
Les vôtres. Qu'est-ce que tu trouves si mal ici Pourquoi ne retournes-tu pas chez la bête Qu'est-ce qui se passe encore Mais pauvre sourde, pauvre aveugle Tu peux nous sauver tous de la ruine La belle, vous l'avez déjà reconnue. Et vous avez aussi reconnu ces trois personnages. Nous irons avec Ludovic et nous tuerons cette épouvantable bête. C'est grand dommage que cette bête ne réclame pas les garçons. Elle te dévorerait et elle mourrait empoisonnée. On te guette. Oh, il m'a frappé Viens au canaille Allez, passe tu veux que je te casse la gueule Laisse, Ludovic. Allons-nous me demander ton mariage. Conte triste. Conte d'amour. Mes sœurs sont trop belles. Et elles ont les mains trop blanches. Belle. Vous êtes la plus belle. Belle. Toujours belle. Peu importe, belle. Belle, je l'ai vue. Sa tête est atroce. Oh je sais que je suis très horrible. Notre film est un hommage à la grande mythologie française des contes de fées. Nous espérons que vous viendrez tous le voir. Merci. And we're back. And we're talking Beauty and the Beast from 1946, directed by Jean Cocteau. A man's family is all out of sorts. Business is bad. All but one kid, his daughter Belle, is lousy. The dude just can't get a break, even winding up in this surreal castle in the middle of a storm. Living statues light his way to dinner, and creepy hands serve him food. He even winds up sleeping there overnight to ride out the storm. He gets up in the morning, makes his way through this amazing statue garden of dogs, and mm -hmm. he finds a lovely rose bush that he plans on bringing one of those roses back to his good daughter, Belle. Well, he done fucked up because our titular character, the Beast, appears from behind some bushes to tell Deer's dad he's going to kill the fool for taking the one thing he wasn't allowed to touch, which is kind of unfair because how was he supposed to know? Dad's like pleads for his life, and the Beast somehow makes a guess that he's got some daughters that he might be willing to trade for his lone life if either of them come back to, on their own free will to the castle to live with them. But if they fail to uh, come back on their own free will, Dad has to come back and die himself. Mm -hmm. So Dad agrees and is given this magic white horse that sends him right back home where he belongs. Uh, he gets home. The whole deal is laid out. And obviously, Belle is game to do what is necessary for her father. Uh, while the other kids, two sisters and a son, they think this is nuts and like think, ah, oh, you, can, you can just get out of this deal because they're pieces of crap. Belle mm -hmm. gets on that white horse and is brought back to her new home of the Beast's abode. From this point forward, we get the will-they-won't-they they aspect of the story, where Belle's charmed by the Beast and his real magic powers over everything on location, but obviously repulsed by this physical animal man. The time mm -hmm. comes that Dad back home isn't doing well. Belle finds this out via magic mirror, and she needs to go and be by his side uh, before he dies. Beast is pretty sad by this, and be uh, eventually begrudgingly agrees to let her go, but tells her that if she doesn't come back in a week's time, he'll die of grief. She gets back, and obviously... Um, 
she's now better off than when she left and her shitty mm-hmm. sisters and brother are like, well, we're broken. Like all these money lenders and people have taken our furniture and stuff because we're pieces of crap. And mm-hmm. they, they want in on that action and they're like, well, we can just go kill this beast. Um, so there's some duplicity uh, involved. Um, they've, uh, yeah. So the family's run itself into the ground and they see an opportunity to kill the beast, take a shit, so there's scheming, some stealing, some sadness, some abruptness, and perhaps some dissatisfaction. But this boy wraps up, and we live kind of happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Pretty our, well. Yeah. Um, like I alluded to last week, I think this is like an all-time classic movie. I think it's mm-hmm. really, really good. It has always, it's probably one of the earliest um, of the Criterion Collection movies I watched, um, and I might have even watched it on video before I got the DVD. But like, I just like I don't know, the movie just uh, has such a weird vibe to it. It opens up with this uh, chalkboard, and it's mm-hmm. like I think it's Cocteau, um, and he's writing the names of the actors out in chalk. Yeah, and like erasing it and then putting up the names of every like of the production on it like in the title mm-hmm. and like I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that in a movie and it's like this mm-hmm. weird like didactic thing and <laughs> after that um, we get this like scroll of Cocteau's um, text describing the movie talking about like wanting to like uh, like hope that his audiences kind of like go into a more of a childlike mindset to watch this movie and lull themselves in and it's just right. like it's just it's such a beautiful gesture it's just like I love that um, mm-hmm. um, the other thing that this movie's got going for it is uh, this actual story uh, of Beauty and the Beast which is by uh, Madame du Beaumont um, it's probably one of my favorite fairy tales um, mm-hmm. I, I remember liking the Disney cartoon um and like it seems like most of the adaptations like I've watched I've always like liked a lot. There's this one uh, 1978 Czechoslovakian adaptation by uh, Jurag Hares, uh, which is just as good as this. Like it's but yeah. it's like dark 70s European like real animal fur and full color mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, it's dark and weird and off-putting, but just as like imaginative. And it just like mm-hmm. there's something about this story that seems to bring out the best in um or beast in uh, the creators Um, and hey and hey let us not forget the uh, Beauty and the Beast television show uh, starring one Ron Perlman as the Beast uh, which and that show was actually I'm not sure if he was a uh, uh, quote unquote showrunner or just like uh, like major writer or whatever but uh, George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame he was he worked on that stuff too and I think maybe even J. Michael Straczynski but I could be wrong on that so that that show Mm -hmm. had a lot of cool factors going into it if you're like into like sewer people and stuff which I am Mm, um, who isn't Judd yeah. man yeah so like uh, rewatching this movie like the stuff that like popped out at me again was just like those dog statues in the statue garden are just oh, yeah. like so amazing and they're shot like kind of like um, from this like low level actually I think this movie is like probably the most interestingly shot movie we've watched so far in our mm-hmm. creep through the movies um, mm-hmm. it's like kind of like I would like, I think the most artistically shot um right. Man, like the the one thing I've been talking about with this movie for years, and like I like my uh, friend Corey, uh, like just like the reveal, the beast jumping up from behind the bushes <laughs> is like one of my favorite things in movies. Uh, yeah. And it's like he's just like, like hello, and he's got that like cal- almost like comical like French accent. It's like super mm-hmm. obnoxious, and it's coming out of this like cat dog man and it's just yeah. like amazing um mm-hmm. this is also uh, watching it this time it uh, i started thinking about there's like the one music video uh dog police 
I don't know. Okay. <laughs> uh, I just recommend people uh, YouTube Dog Police, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, there's like the the living statues, like those arms coming out of the walls and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, I'm like really like not too familiar with Cocteau's like other movies. I think this is the only one I've watched so far. But uh, down the road, we will be watching uh, a trilogy of his movies, the Orphic trilogy. Um, right. And there's like the one. Um, that I kind of like just like looked at some screen grabs of uh, Blood of the Poet. And like there's like sort of the same type of stuff going on in that movie, which is like uh, like a silent film from like decade, uh, a couple decades earlier uh, with, with like kind of these living statues and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, there's just like the scene of uh, Belle when she enters the castle for the first time in slow motion. Um, mm-hmm. So that whole scene is shot in reverse. And it, it, <laughs> I think that's the scene that's shot in reverse. But yeah. There's and, a few. Yeah, there's a there's few. A, and they're yeah. and then they're played forward. And it's like, yeah, just right. to capture this kind of like unworldly sort of movement. And like, it's just like, like talk about like one of the best things ever shot in movies. Like, it's just like mm-hmm. amazing to look at. Um, I guess like one thing that I guess some people I that I noticed again this time was there's a certain roughness to like the movie like it seems mm-hmm. like there's times where like the camera kind of jars out of place or like there's like some really rough edits where i'm like what is what's up with this like it's like definitely like yeah. one of the less polished movies compared to like other stuff we've been watching which are like mm-hmm. very like um like crisp in that sense but like so when i was reading up about this movie again i mean one of the things that's pretty significant to keep in mind is this movie was released in 1946 so this is a post-war france movie um production on this movie started like a mere four months after germany surrendered uh in world war ii um any time no like they got right back to work and so at the time like cocteau wanted to shoot this in color um Hmm. and so i mean that was just it was just too expensive to do like in 1946 yeah. in post-war France. Um, so, I mean, this was shot black and white, uh, which is like kind of amazing. Like you couldn't, I couldn't even imagine this movie in uh, color, but I mean, I start thinking about it and it's just like, oh my God, this movie would be uh, brilliant. But um, so like, there's like the film stock they used varied like reel to reel because, or whenever they were shooting because they didn't, they were just getting whatever was available. Uh, equipment wasn't always the best. So a lot of like making do was uh, with what was available was like why that, 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 that roughness is the case. Um, apparently, this, uh, the the close set, they were, the studio set they were shooting this on was like right beside a military airfield. So the sound in the oh. movie, which explains sort of like the weird like sound at time cutting out and like kind of like weird shortcuts they had to do with the sound because like I guess they had talked to like who was running the military base to say, hey, we're shooting or whatever. And he's like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. But then they'd forget. And then there'd be times where yeah. it's like, oh, they're dropping bombs <laughs> while we're recording these these dialogue scenes. But yeah, like so you had like old cameras jamming, old lenses like developing flaws, um, electric currents failed uh, because like I mean at the time like you'd be having power outages and stuff like that because I mean they're getting the whole grid back in place. Um, there was like a small tr- like your, your uh, fabrics for costumes and stuff like that were limited. Um, there was like sheets without patches, uh, <laughs> right? And there's like yeah, apparently like curtains of from. Uh, um, beauty bell beauty's uh, bed were stolen from the set um yeah so uh, this movie is just like just so lovely to look at like it runs me to i guess like uh, a few years earlier there was the adventures of robin hood it's just this, like kind of like really it, the movie really succeeds in taking you to a different place like um that like a lot of filmmakers these days don't go into um mm-hmm. i'd say that like probably like 
I, I really enjoy this movie up until like those last five minutes where it becomes like super abrupt and like it's almost like a disappointing mess. Like where um, mm-hmm. like there's like the switch, I guess, um, where the, the beast d- dies from grief and giving mm-hmm. up and then uh, uh, her like bow from back home, Avente, Asente. Yeah. He gets arrowed down by one of those living sculptures while they're in sort of like the storage cabinet or this, the, the, the shed uh, of mm-hmm. his power source. And then he gets killed and then he gets turned into the beast. And then uh, up in reverse motion comes uh, the, the restored beast. And there's like a lot of like discussion about like the new boy. Um, and like, I don't know, I'm almost finished here and then I'll ask you a question, RJ. But yeah. There's like, I don't know, at that point, it's like, wow, that's like really weird and jarring and stuff like that. And but then that taking flight scene of like the two like kind of flying off together, it's like Mm -hmm. one of the most like amazing images like in film um, easily. And yeah, I mean, so it's like in the music swells, uh, Georges music. I can't remember his last name right now, but yeah. uh, George music. George music uh, swells and it's uh, just a, a real beautiful movie. So RJ, mm-hmm. I've I've rambled on here a little bit. What do you have to say about Beauty and the Beast? Uh, well, I just had. I'll, I'll start with um, a question to for you, Jared. Yeah. Do you believe in magic? <laughs> uh no. I I, well, I believe the idea of magic is language. If you want to start getting into the discussion of chaos magic in a Alan Moore, uh, Grant Morrison type of way. No, I don't want to do that. Okay. But I'm going to take it as if you said um, n- just plain no, and I'll say, well, after watching this movie, you will. <laughs> that's, the, that's the full quote. <laughs> Whoa. Um, yeah, this movie is um, pretty fucking rad. Yeah. Uh, I liked it a lot. Um, I don't think I ever realized before, but Beauty and the Beast is just like a horror movie, kind of. Like, kind of. Yeah, kind of. Kind of like, like when you mentioned, so obviously like one of my favorite, um, off the bat, one of my absolute favorite parts that I'm sure a lot of people talk about is like the wall arms, like all the arms coming out of the walls, just holding like, uh, candlesticks and stuff like that. Like I just, there was a point in the movie, like 20 minutes in when Belle first gets there, like you said, and she's walking through the hallway and like, uh, there's just all the arms holding the candles and stuff like that. I, I found it really like like eerie like yeah i don't know like it just it hit me i was like i think this is a horror movie somehow <laughs> um and it, it was just it was super striking but um did you ever no, watch repulsion have you watched repulsion yet uh yeah i have seen yeah that, well because there's like that scene too but i mean that's like definitely mm-hmm. played more for like thriller horror stuff with the art like all those arms coming out the yeah the, and it's like i mean that's like total i mean how could that not be a callback to this yeah yeah absolutely but yeah. those arms are uh grabby grabbing at the chesticles and things like that so those are sexual arms the the arms in this movie are uh helpful arms right but uh um no yeah i think this movie is fucking wicked uh like you said um that opening credit with uh him writing like the credits on the chalkboard and just wiping them off that's super cool uh it sets up things like right away um really cool where you see that all the siblings are just pieces of shit like you said like (laughs) the son is like has like doing target practice with his bow and arrow and the target is like 
up on the house in between four different oh, open windows yeah and he's just shooting at the target and like he misses once and almost hits the dog and you're yeah. just like you're like okay well just there you're like well that guy's a piece of shit yeah and then the two a real world-class turd world-class turd yeah and then the two sisters that were very like um cinderella-esque yes yeah like the evil stepsisters kind of thing yeah like you you can just tell right away that they're just pieces of shit which is good <laughs> like um i like i mean it like he does a good job in just establishing that all these characters fucking suck like because bell's like cleaning and stuff and she's like she makes a comment like uh when the Gaston character, I'm just going to call him Gaston. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, uh, that's how I know it. So I'm just going to stick okay. with that. And he's like, you're too pretty for this. And she's like, no. And he's like, I got to do this shit, man. It's like, dad needs me. But she like never mentions like how shitty the other siblings are that they never help and stuff like that. So I think that all gets set up really good. Uh, speaking of Gaston, is that what it is in the cartoon? Is it Gast- Gaston? Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In okay, the Disney whatever. one. Speaking of him in this movie, he has the raddest mullet. Like, oh. it's the craziest curly-ass mullet. It's like a pompadour. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking it's historically accurate. Um, yeah. But, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think Jean Marais kind of rocked that bad boy yeah. in all I walks think, of life. In all walks of life, yeah. I think this movie actually started a lot of um, 80s fashion trends because, like, <laughs> Like people with pompadours and mullets and then uh, even the beast's appearance, which is just fucking amazing. Yeah. Like you said, he's like just cat dog man face. And then he has the hugest shoulder fucking shoulder pads and like an astro cape with like yeah. planets and stars and stuff. And there's and like wearing, the prince gloves. The prince gloves. Yeah. And uh, he's wearing like um, Ugg boots where he's like <laughs> frilled out and stuff. Like he's so like lavish and just uh, – it's oh. it's such a like the costume is so perfect for like yeah what they build up for like him being just like a weird ugly like thing but he wears all these like super balling ass clothes yeah oh so hey um did you when did you realize that Jean Marais played both the Beast uh Evanant and the, and, the and, the, and the Prince yeah the very last scene when the when Beast turned into him and I was like oh man boyfriend got a haircut. Yeah. And uh, no, yeah, it wasn't until the very last thing. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, I didn't even realize at all. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, like, he's like, yeah. I mean, like, what a credit to his performance is the beast, though. It's like, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. okay. I got this nice little bit here. Uh, this is from one of the, from the uh, Criterion booklet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about Maurice and uh, the beast makeup. So he, this is like from his own recollections here. Uh, for my mask, we went to Pontet, an elderly gentleman, a real genius, one of those men who make you realize that one can be passionately in love with one's work, whatever it may be. He devoted a great deal of thought to how the mask could be given the look of my own face and not interfere with, with its mobility. He made a cast and worked on it endlessly. I often went to see him with Moloch, and the dog taught us things. I think Moloch's the name of his dog. <laughs> okay. The unevenness and shagginess and spottiness of the fur that make it seem so alive are due to Moloch. Uh, Monsieur Potent made my mask like a wig, hair on a webbing base, but in three parts. One down to the eyes, a second as far as the upper lip, and the third to the base of the neck. It took me five hours to make up. That meant 13 hours a day in the studio. Because of the fangs attached to my teeth, all I could eat was mush and that by the spoonful. Between takes, I scarcely dared open my mouth lest the makeup become unglued. No one understood what I said, and that exasperated me. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Um, there's like also um, 
the weird like so you do when I was mentioning like kind of like the weird disappointment at the end of the movie did you like pick like kind of feel that same way like the like where you're like man the beast was so like awesome and now it's like mm-hmm. this like the pretty boy um well I guess like that was intentional <laughs> from what like uh Jean Cocteau has this really nice uh essay that he wrote for uh, uh the the US premiere uh as part of the press book for it Mm-hmm. Um, which I might just wind up going ahead and reading all of, cause I think it's like, he seems like a really uh, cool cat, that cocteau dude. Um, yeah, shoot. but, um, yeah. So, uh, one thing it's weird. It's like, so I guess like John Cocteau went to the premiere of the movie with some famous actress. Uh, the guy who wrote the criterion notes, uh, says it was Greta Garbo and, uh, Roger Ebert says it was Marlene Dietrich. And I guess okay. like they both have this reaction of like when, uh, Marais kind of like comes back to life in like, as in, and now he's human. It's just, mm-hmm. where's, where's my beautiful beast? <laughs> mm-hmm. Cause I guess like the whole idea is that like, uh, they wanted to depict him as like so beastly um, and like right. to, and turn off people and like win you over or whatever. But I'm like, he's pretty cool to begin with. But so I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that's just like that's that style of like makeup and filmmaking has just like completely shifted over. I don't know if that, it was ever horrific, even in like 1946 necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. Cause like, I don't know. It's got like sort of that same charm as like the universal Wolfman does, but yeah, like, it's, yeah. it's way more um, like animal esque than like the Wolfman, which is like a guy with a really furry head with like mm-hmm. a dog nose on it. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. So I guess like one thing that I will mention too, uh, that uh, should mention with this movie too, is I guess like Jean Cocteau and Jean Marais were actually uh, on again, off again lovers. Uh, yeah, 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 Jean Cocteau. I guess like he was like bisexual, and I guess Jean Marais was too. Uh, one of the pictures I posted on our Instagram was just like the two of them hanging out with their dog on the grass. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Um, so, I, so true, true love can happen. Jared. I, I know and this this proves it. Um, this so, proves it. Uh, if you will indulge me, I'm just going to go ahead and read this uh, Jean Cocteau uh, essay. A uh, little thing. It. Once upon a time, French poet explains his filming of fairy tale. The poet Paul Allard says that to understand my film version of Beauty and the Beast, you must love your dog more than your car. Ordinarily, I would settle for that. However, with so much being written about the film that is entirely false to my intentions, I have decided... uh, Oh my god, I just hit the wrong button. (laughs) Oh my god. I have decided that I must explain myself just a little. The French film industry is now going through a curious phase. In the past, our producers found that wit and poetry could be made to pay. Now, with the field of distribution constantly decreasing, with production costs increasing, and with theater admission rates fixed by the government at a non-realistic low level, the businessmen of the cinema have gradually become patrons of the arts, ill-tempered ones, as you can imagine. At the present moment, a film that goes against average tastes gets few bookings in France, and outside of some ambitious pictures... Um, Undertaken to maintain prestige, production is almost of a, at a standstill and the studio is deserted. A poet engaged in film work must face another great difficulty, the immediate results demanded of a motion picture. A book can wait. A play that has flopped may be revived. A film must please at once, and we therefore have to devise ways to please and displease all, the same, all at the same time. There has never bit yet been an instance of something new not baffling the aesthetes, the critics, and the public, lazily accepting familiar formulas. The least challenge is apt to awaken a brutal and unpleasant response. The only hope for a film is that the public, less blind and less deaf than our judges, should say more childlike and more open to persuasion, may disobey the veto of the with Beauty and the Beast, see simply and lovingly what blinkers hide from the enthroned intelligentsia. 
In short, when I decided to make a film that would be a fairy tale, and when I chose the one that is the least fairy-like, which is to say the one that would need to make the least use of modern cinema techniques, I of course knew that I was going to pont- I was going pontiffs, and as has been the case against the grain, against the tide, against the tide. Once more, I was in opposition to current fashion. To realism, I would oppose the simplified, formalized behavior of characters out of Molaire at the beginning of the film. To fairyland as people usually see it, I would bring a kind of realism to banish the vague and misty nonsense now so completely outworn. My story would concern itself mainly with the unconscious obstinacy with which women pursue the same type of man and expose the naivete of the old fairy tales that would have us believe that this type reaches its ideal and conventional good looks. My aim would be to make the beast so human, so sympathetic, so superior to men that his transformation into Prince Charming would come as a terrible blow to beauty, condemning her to a humdrum marriage and a future that I summed up in the last sentence of all fairy tales, and they had many children." I was therefore obliged to deceive both the public and beauty herself. Slyly, and with much effort, I persuaded my cameraman, Alakan, to shoot Jean Marais as the prince in as saccharine a style as possible. The trick worked. When the picture was released, letters poured in from matrons, teenage girls and children, complaining to me and Marais about the transformation. They mourned the disappearance of the beast, the same beast who terrified them so at the time when uh, Madame Le Prince de Demont wrote the story. When Madame de Beaumont uh, published Beauty and the Beast, she was an impoverished teacher in England, and I suppose that the story is of Scotch origin. Anglo-Saxons managed the horror story, The Weird Tale, better than anybody else. In fact, in England, one still hears tales of lords, the eldest sons of noble families, heirs to the title, hidden away in barred rooms of old castles. These are three reasons why I have high hopes that Americans will readily grasp my intention. First, America is the home of Edgar Allan Poe, secret societies, mystics, ghosts, and a wonderful lyricism in the very streets. Second, childhood remains longer within the soul than it does here in France, where we try to suppress it as a weakness. Third, the America that now influences French literature is already ancient history for you, and the American is looking forward to something other than what astonishes us, but no longer astonishes him. Here, roughly sketched, I have tried to give you something of what led me to an experience that I shall not repeat, because true experience must be unique. I can only compare it once again to the casting forth of a seed, which falls on favorable or unfavorable ground, blowing where it will. And and that's the end of his article. But trivia... Cocteau, scourged by his post-occupation eczema, so disfigured that for a time he wore a veil made of black paper fastened to the brim of his hat with clothespins with holes for his eyes and mouth. He developed jaundice and filming was interrupted for Beauty and the Beast while he was hospitalized in the Institut Pasteur. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, So he, so he is the beast, I guess, <laughs> yeah, eh? He's he he a bit of a beast, I guess, there for a little oh. bit. That's sad. Yeah. But yeah, that bit line about like, uh, you must love your dog more than your car. I think that yeah, really, awesome. that really hits home. <laughs> yeah, it does, man. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good, um, moral that a lot of people don't hold anymore. That's, mm-hmm. you know, it's true. You gotta, you gotta appreciate life, Jared, mm-hmm. more than material things. That's right. Like dogs and cats, like when Belle pets him and he's like, you pet me like a pet. And she's like, but you are a pet boyfriend and then they get down you know you know that scene yeah maybe that's maybe that was the director's cut i watched yeah. the uh the rough erotic 70s porno scene mm. where he be suddenly had a huge mustache over top of all his other hair <sighs> yeah uh no that, that's pretty cool i i agree with that a lot too yeah um but yeah like like you said well 
I think that like what he says about the ending helps it a little bit because I, I did have that feeling too where I thought it was like you said like kind of abrupt um I did think it was funny though like when he does transition and then they play it in reverse where he like you can tell like they filmed him just falling Falling over on his side and then they they like reversed it and it's just like it's so fucking funny (laughs) um but yeah like the ending I thought was abrupt (laughs) when you uh you've mentioned like how at the very end they like fly away I thought it 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 reminded me because he's like now we'll go to uh like the kingdom of the fairies or something like my palace um, it remi- reminded me of that Simpsons when, uh, you know, when Homer has a spot as Poochie on Itchy and Scratchy. And, and then they write his home his, planet. <laughs> yeah, they write him off. He's like, I must go now to my home planet. And then the cell just like lifts out of frame. <laughs> oh, what, boy. That was what I thought of. Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. But uh, I thought about that. Um, no, yeah, I thought the, I thought it was really weird, though. Like, so the Gaston and character and her brother, like, go to his place to steal his treasures and yep. they have a key but for like no reason he's like let's go up to the window and break in yeah but they made like such an effort to steal the key well yeah they went and got the key and they went well we better not try this key because there could be a devious trap let's go try the like let's go through the ceiling the wind yeah and like but it was like because he didn't enter with the key then the trap was like sprung on him which i thought was really weird and also so like when beast gives her that key He's like, and then he points to like the shed with all the treasure. He's like, that's Diana's room. And then when Gaston like goes up on the window, he's like, look, it's Diana. And I was just like, wait a second. Did I miss something? Like, who the fuck is Diana? Like, like I really had no idea where that came from. The fact that Beast said it was his place. And then like the Gaston guy was like, it's Diana. Like, oh, actually, actually, maybe it was because Belle told Gaston and her brother everything so he she was like Beast has a treasure well, room that's called Diana's place well I think it's um Diana's the goddess of the hunt the moon and nature and associated with wild animals in the woodlands okay. according to Wikipedia so I think it's like a mythological reference like I think it's like okay. Diana's not an actual person Diana is like because like there's like the whole like uh, backdrop it's like there's like the hunted like him hunting animals and stuff like that Mm -hmm. okay that makes way more sense yeah that that scene's actually really funny too where like the whole movie he's like bell bell (laughs) and then she like she actually talks to him and a deer runs by and he's like ears like it's like animatronic his ears move a little bit and he's like and she's, she's like what's wrong he's like uh uh he just like really wants to hunt deer yeah which i thought was super cool and then Bell's like cold as ice after like he comes back covered in blood and she's like, wipe yourself off and like throws a, a towel at him. I was like, God damn, Bill, <laughs> cold as ice. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I love no, him dr- and drinking the water at the at the little drink, pond. Yeah, just licking it up. Oh, uh, so I thought good. that was super cool. Yeah. Um, one part I thought was really cool is like so like all the living statues and stuff. Yeah. The two men that were in the fireplace. Uh, number one, they have iron constitutions. Those fuckers do not blink. I and I swear to God, there's like a scene where th- that guy's like in camera view for like three and a half minutes and he never blinks. It's fucking insane. Um, there was also a really cool part where like uh, it was at the start when Bell's dad is there and like he walks by, by the fireplace and the man in the fireplace blows out smoke. 
And I thought it was really funny because I was like, I wonder if like just in between scenes, like someone gave that guy like a cigarette and he just took like a huge drag off of it. And then like they played the scene out and he just blew out all the cigarette smoke. Um, I, I think that's funny. I, I'd, I'd like to live in a world where that's just common practice for filming movies. Right. Um, that was really cool. Uh, Beast is an old horn dog. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's like, hey, old man. You fucking took my flower off. I'm gonna kill you. And the guy's like, "Oh, it's for my daughter." And he's like, "All right, well, I'll tell you what. You bring me back. Send one of your daughters my way. We'll call it square." And this guy's like, "Uh, okay." Yeah. So Beast is an old horn dog. Um, there was a line I thought was really funny too, where he's like, to fit in with how I said it was a horror movie, where uh, he's like, takes her to the dining room, and he's like will you permit me to watch you dine? And he just kind of like leans in towards her. And mm-hmm. she's like, she's like, no, <laughs> she's like, get away from me. You weirdo. Um, that was super cool. All the like backwards scenes were really good. Like where they like film it backwards. Oh, um, my absolute favorite effect was like when she gets that, uh, Nintendo entertainment system, power glove, yep. and she puts on the power glove and then she like, gets pushed through a wall or something like in the scene it's like a square that like they lift her body up through and then the wall gets replaced like right. to to mimic like the teleportation i thought that was fucking cool man yeah like i don't know i don't i haven't seen other things like that maybe like the johnny depp scene or the oprah noodlemeyer scene sorry in uh, nightmare on elm street the first one where he gets pulled through like the ceiling <laughs> i guess maybe that's just a, a rip like a reverse rip off of this I think, yeah, I mean, it's just like kind of like, I mean, if you start thinking about how you would do these scenes, it's sort of like, well, that's how you could do it. And I mean, the movie's kind of going for like, we want to have this sort of like, uh, like child, like fairy, like fairy tale mm-hmm. vibe to it. And um, I mean, like it, it, it completely achieves that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like there's like such a, the movie just motors along. It doesn't drag, I don't think. Yep. Um, and like, yeah, like I said, like uh, it's beautifully shot and um yeah, just like what great performances. Um, I think this is the only time we're ever going to see uh, the lead actress, uh, Josette Day, um, mm-hmm. in, in any movie on the Criterion Creep. So, so long. That's too bad. So long. But. Um, see you in hell. <laughs> Aww. Well, because she's dead now, right? Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, so, I, I don't know. Um, is it time to talk about that new Disney movie trailer? Sure. That live action it, like, thing. It, is it even a trailer? I thought it was just a teaser oh, that like, it, it shows is. a rose. Yeah. It, it looks like it's just paying lip service to the animated movie. And, oh, uh, with the, the, be my, the heavy be my guest in insinuations. Yeah. Hashtag. <laughs> hashtag be my guest. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just looks like every Disney live action reboot. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I will say, though, right now that Pete's Dragon reboots in the theaters, and I thought that looked pretty good. So yeah. maybe this has hope. It's got it's got some pretty good people attached to it, like uh, Emma Watson. I think Emma, Tom- is it Emma Thomas or Thompson is in there as Mrs. Potts. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Ewan McGregor, Ian McKellen as uh, Lumiere and Cogsworth. That's <laughs> all neat. Uh-huh. <laughs> Do you think this one will end like the Disney movie did, where like a stone gets fucking like thrown off a cliff and then just dies off camera? That, that that's the Disney well, way still, of death. Yeah, but that's a pretty gnarly death. Like I know, like those old Disney's are they do have a lot of deaths like that. But I I remember that always like 
sticking out to me where it's like, man, Beast just like throws this fucking dude off of his mansion down into like off a cliff, basically. And and rightfully so. Yeah, yeah, he had it coming. I just I was just like, God damn. Come on. It was the nineties. That's when like heroes were able to like just throw bad baddies off of things to their mm-hmm. death. Because yeah. they deserved it. Just like just just like Michael Caine in Steven Seagal's on Deadly Ground. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I guess. Well, RJ, who hates this movie? Oh no. Oh my god. Well, it's that time. Who I guess. who 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 hates on this movie? Uh mm-hmm. someone named Nyctophobic. He gave this one star. This adaptation of the timeless tale of Beauty and the Beast is rough around the edges and has very little in terms of nuance, dimension, and character. It delivers scene after scene, yes, but never connects the dots and fills the gaps in between. The narration is non-existent, and even as a play devoid of narrative, the dialogues often come as unnatural, forced, and silly. And if that was not enough, it's also devoid of romance whatsoever. Quite the tragedy for what should be the quintessential love story. It's difficult for me to really punish my favorite fairy tale, yet this rendition comes off as an abysmal drama at best and a nothingness of romance at worst. Good lord. (laughs) Flim Flam Films. One star. <laughs> I had a I had a terrible reaction to this movie. I really like allergic. I really don't care that it was made in the nineteen forties. That's like the go to for so many people. It's like I don't care. It's this old. Made, it's old. It looks yeah. like it's older than that. There were a couple of whoa interesting use of set design moments and a couple of wow I'm impressed that they managed that with limited means moments. But that's basically all that I could extract from this movie. Just like any film in a language that I don't understand, I can appreciate that translation disrupts the original script, but a movie filled with lines like love can make an ugly man handsome doesn't allow me to endure watching without the desire to vomit. I Uh, hated this movie. Mastering the ability to manufacture wizardry through effects shouldn't be the goal of a work of art. It felt like a glorified children's movie, and every single frame felt extraordinarily dated. This one deserves to fall into the dustbin of history. Fucker. Yeah. What a piece of shit. And one more here. Scott Mm -hmm. Takuri, one and a half stars. Instead of having standard opening credits for its time... They had a man write the star's names on a chalkboard and a lady would wipe it off for him to write the following star's name and this captured my interest. But then, it wasn't as good as I'd hoped when the actual movie started. The costumes didn't really give the illusion of looking real, which was a letdown. It also seemed to make men look like brutish fools who care for nothing and shoot arrows through windows that almost take out dogs, napping in their beds. All in all, (laughs) most of the acting was so-so and the beast could have looked better. I'm not exactly sure why this was released in the early days of the Criterion Collection when they changed formats from LaserDisc to DVD. Then again, they've released worse. How dare he commenting on the Beast's outfit. His, I hold, his astro cape is one of the finest fashion statements of the last century. Yeah. So that guy's wrong. Yeah. Well, I, that think, guy's just wrong. I, think, I think someone needs to bring that back. I'll do it, man. If uh, the fans or if uh, the sponsor, the good sponsors down at Pizza Hut, if they will uh, <laughs> make me or like provide the funds for one of these things, I'll wear that fucker all day long. Ooh. Yeah, you heard it here, folks. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to get that GoFundMe started. Yeah. 
Uh, I'll give give it to the manager of Stu at the Southside Pizza Hut. Yeah. Uh, let him figure it out. He'll know who sent you. Will you have to wear uh, hair nets? Uh, when I'm in the back, like yeah. needing the dough and stuff. But yeah. uh, they don't usually know I'm back there when I do that. So oh, yeah. I can do pretty much whatever I want. And with shoulder pads like that, no one would stop me anyways. No man would dare stop you. No man. No man could. Yeah. So, well, those guys, I feel like the common criticism of all those guys was like, it's old. Yep. And it's in a different language. <laughs> so it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't be watching old foreign films if you just don't like that stuff. Yeah. It Pretty kinda, simple. It just bums me out that uh, I guess they did not fall under the spell that uh, Cocteau was casting. Yeah, I I believe in the fairyland now, so yeah. it worked on one person. Mm-hmm. 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 So that's a solid, good, hard recommend, I think. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, after the break, we're just going to wrap this motherfucker up, so stay tuned. <laughs> Well, RJ, it's a, another show in the bucket, that internet crab bucket, that internet bucket of crabs, crab bucket, yep. chaos, yeah, Canadian. I think it might be our longest episode <laughs> so far, yeah. yeah. But uh, you wait until we get to uh, Armageddon, and then that'll surely be our longest episode. It really brought the beast out of us. Hey, hey, what hey, a what a beaut! E. Oh, huh? fuck. I'm done with the show. I quit. Yeah. So, I'm out of here. So are the listeners. Well, yeah. uh, if you're still with us, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Criterion Creeps. You can mm-hmm. email us your own. Like, yeah, actually, you know what? We've never really mentioned this, but yeah, if you have any thoughts or spare change huh. or like yeah. uh, insights into movies that we're going to be talking about, I mean, we're going in like order. So, I mean, if there's like a movie that you want to have thoughts on and share with the mm-hmm. world, uh, send those to us you can record them as mp3s attach them to an email send it to us at criterioncreeps at gmail.com you can type it out and have me or rj read them to uh the listeners um whoever they prefer they could have the uh, cold calculated narration of Jarrett francois duncan mm-hmm. or they could have the hard erotic 
ab-infused narration from yeah. uh, from Stu from Pizza. We, 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 we call it the, the Rage Edition. Ooh, they're ribbed yeah. for your pleasure. <laughs> Is anyone still here? We got a Facebook page. You can look us up. Criterion Creeps. Yep. Uh, there's a Tumblr, Criterion Creeps at Tumblr.com.com, whatever the fuck. Instagram. I think Instagram is uh, taking off. It's it's going to win the social media wars. Um, I think so. And for your listening pleasures, because somehow you're listening to this, but uh, we're on SoundCloud, SoundCloud.com slash Criterion Creeps. We're uh, on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We've got the bases covered, I think. Follow us. Yep. Like us. Even if you don't like us, do it. Do what's right for business. Just give us a break, man. I got to move out of this alley. I need help. RJ needs help. I need help. And help next, me out. next week, we're talking Roy Roy Ward Baker's 1958, A Night to Remember. It's another Titanic movie, but from like a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to expect on that front. Uh, this is like a, a virginal viewing for both of us. So yeah, it is. Yeah, it, this is. I think the first. No, no. Grand Illusion was like the first first timer for both of us. But uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, here's another one coming at yeah, us. Come back because you. Who knows what'll happen? Maybe we'll both hate the movie and just talk about hard abs the whole time. <laughs> Anything could happen. Yep. Anything could happen. But maybe I'll, James Cameron will come and guest on the episode. <laughs> And next week, I reveal to the world the secret link between Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast and A Night to Remember. (gasps) Tune in.